we're going to dive into two of those passages where you probably uh, read them on your own and you think to yourself, wow, where's someone who can explain to me what that means? And I did the same thing this week, so that's good, isn't it? Um, I am very excited uh, to have this opportunity to open up Ezekiel 1. And uh, I'm going to pray. I want to say to you, I'll show my hand early. I think if we get this, it should change our lives. And uh, that's a big ask, isn't it, for a Sunday morning? And uh, how many sermons do we sit through? And of course, I would wish that every sermon would change your life, yeah? But I think, particularly in this area, that this should change our lives. So I'm going to ask God, who is living and active, that he might help us do that. Is that all right? Would you join me in prayer? Heavenly Father, I thank you that you are indeed living and active. I pray now that by your Holy Spirit, you would grab our hearts, our minds, our imaginations, and that you would reveal yourself to us through this, your word. Help us, Father. We need your help, and we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, big introduction. Uh, what I want you to do, I want you to get your Care and Connect card out. Uh, everyone has one, I know you do. And if you don't, reach over and steal someone else's. I, I literally mean everyone. So don't just look at someone else and hope that they're doing it. I want you to do it. And uh, in fact, I've got to go and get one for myself. Uh, what I want you to do, uh, this is starting off our life-changing sermon. You thought this was going to happen today, didn't you? Uh, so this little card here, what I want you to do on the back of it, everyone, and you're telling me already, you're saying, I can't draw. I hear it. Telepathically, I can hear everyone saying that I can't draw. That's okay. That's actually part of it. So can I ask everybody here, one of these people, you can draw a bike right now. Okay, go, please. If you're finished, you haven't put enough wheels on. Okay, now if you're still going, you're making art, so you can stop. Tim's looking. <laughs> Have you Googled it, Tim? <laughs> oh, he's looking at your answers. Oh, I see. Okay. <laughs> I, I, I'm not sure a unicycle is a bicycle. Okay, so that's, uh, that's probably it. All right. Okay, have you drawn your bike? Uh, no one will need to be embarrassed, at least not now. Okay, all right. What I want you to do, have a look up from your bike. Um, this is apparently an, uh, uh, an art thing that uh, this guy did. He, he got people, adults and kids, and he said, I want you to draw a bike. And so they drew it. This is a guy, uh, Leonardo, who's uh, 19. That's his bike. Okay, does that look like your bike? Anyway, what he then did, this guy's a uh, computer genius. And so what he did is he then rendered in high detail what their bikes would look like if they were actually... Do, do you see? So here's his, here's his picture. Here we go. Here's his picture. And then he went, okay, well, imagine we actually built that bike. Well, that would look like that. And some of you might be thinking, yeah, that looks right. It doesn't look right. Okay. <laughs> There's some problems with that one. So here's another person. Uh, age 57. Uh, this is... Uh, I can't say, Rosella or something like that. Uh, this is, uh, this is uh, the bike that they, they made. Now, that's pretty good, isn't it? Has some problems, though, when we do it in 3D. Here's, here's what happens. Um, it might not turn. 
Do you notice this? Okay. Uh, and the seat's in an odd place and all this. Okay, so what, what, what does this tell us? What does this tell us? Well, what, what would happen if I got you to draw a picture of God? Okay, now the first thing, some of you would throw back at me a commandment that says, don't make a graven image of the Lord, and that would be a good place to start. But here's the thing. Bikes are really familiar, aren't they? Almost everyone in this room will have ridden one. You have a kid's one that you trip over in the garage, right? Uh, You know what a bike is, and you're hugely familiar with it. If I show you a picture of it, you'd go, that's a bike. But here's the thing. Left to our own devices, you and I don't do a good job of creating a real bike, generally. Now, some of you, I'm going to ask that when, uh, when Luke gets our Caring Connect cards collected at the end of the day, I can have a look at your bike, so that'll be great. But, but here's the thing. Some of you will have done a great job, but many of us will go, I'm not quite sure how that... What? I know there's two wheels somehow, and there's some sticks between them, but actually we've got a problem. We actually don't know how to bring this thing that's very familiar with us into reality. And what I want to suggest to you today is that we would all claim at some varying levels, that we know God. But too often, the picture that we have of God is a poor hand-drawn sketch of what he's actually like. Are you with me? Of what he's actually like. And part of the joy of doing this series, Meeting God in the Old Testament, is that we're meeting God as he chooses to reveal himself to us, not just how we would imagine him. Do you see the difference? So this is God showing us things about himself. And so today, we've prayed already that God might reveal more of who he actually is to us. And I pray that at the end, we'll be ready to discard some of our sketches of God and replace them with more detail from the true and living God. So today, as we meet with God, I think the question we want to ask him is, what's it like really meeting you? What's it like to truly meet the living God? And in Ezekiel, we have a man who did that. So let me tell you about Ezekiel. Uh, If you've never seen these before, this is my overview of the Old Testament and the New Testament in pictures. And it just helps us see where these books of the Bible kind of fit. So the book of Ezekiel is after they've come into the promised land, green grass, after God has given his people kings, after those kings have persistently gone astray, and now Ezekiel is writing to a people who are in exile who've been kicked out of the promised land and flung far away because of their persistent sin. So the book is written in exile. What does that mean in practice? Well, let's kind of just zoom in our little map of the world. Okay, so here's the Middle East. Uh, Jerusalem, which is the heart and soul of Israel, the place where the temple is, where they would have said, God lives here. If you're looking for God's postal address in all the world, okay, That place in Jerusalem, this temple, is where God lives. That's what the Jews would have said. And now they find themselves taken far away, across the desert, to Babylon. Because of their sin, God tells them, they have lost the promised land. So they're thousands of kilometers away from where they should be. And the Kibar River, where Ezekiel has his vision, is a little bit up the stream from Babylon. Who is Ezekiel? Oh, he's a man having his 30th birthday. How about that? Uh, This is a pretty good birthday present, isn't it? 
I gave him a cupcake. God gave him a revelation of himself. So he's a 30-year-old priest. What that means, uh, apparently the priests couldn't start being priests until their 30th birthday. So they were in training up until they turned 30. What's the problem with being a trainee priest in Babylon? Well, you don't have anywhere to do your job, do you? Because where's the job? Back in Jerusalem. And so here's a man who his whole life had been preparing for a job in the end he couldn't do. So he would have known about the law. He would have known about the scriptures. He would have known about the sacrifices. And here he is, far away in a foreign land, surrounded by idols, surrounded by godless people who are worshipping in all sorts of different ways, doing all sorts of detestable things. And here he is. He has this auspicious day when he has his 30th birthday, the day he's supposed to start serving, and God meets him. God meets him. It's quite extraordinary. And he meets him. Did you see all those dates that were there? Um, Now, I I wasn't able to verify this independently, but I'm reliably informed that if you chase through the fifth year of Jehoiakim and all these other bits and pieces in the first couple of verses, you actually end up with a very specific date. You ready for this? The 31st of July, 593 BC. Now, I just think that's cool. Just total sidelight, apart from all the great things we're going to learn about God today. There's a date in the Bible that you can actually absolutely pinpoint. 31st of July, 593 BC. Isn't that extraordinary? I should have worked out exactly how long ago it was because we're almost coming up to July, aren't we? A long time ago. For Ezekiel, for every one of the Lord's people, God feels far away. Not only are they out of the promised land, but in their hearts they must have felt God's judging us. He's kicked us out. He's left us. He's abandoned us. Ezekiel has been in this foreign land for five years already. Where on earth is God? Where is the living God? And extraordinarily, on his 30th birthday, God shows up. What does he see? What is it that Ezekiel sees? Now, I want you to see it with me. So if you can open your Bibles up, we're going to go to Ezekiel chapter 1. It will be very handy to have that uh, open in front of you. Ezekiel chapter 1. Well, what does he see? We're going to have a look at verses uh, 4 to 5 here. I looked and saw a windstorm coming out of the north, an immense cloud with flashing lightning and surrounded by brilliant light. The center looked like glowing metal, and in the fire was what looked like four creatures. I shall go back a click. Here's the thing. Where was the cloud coming from? This is, I just want you to be really involved this morning. Where was the cloud coming from? Okay, if you've got any sense of map in your head, what direction was Jerusalem from where he was? There's some answers, north, south, east, west. Uh, It's across to the west. Where does this storm cloud come from? I just want you to see how extraordinary that is. This is such a non-important detail. But here's the thing. God is coming from the north. He's not coming from the west. He isn't just the God of Israel. Do you see this? He is coming from the north. How does he come? Well, he comes with lightning and glowing fire. I love this picture. It's taken from a volcano erupting. How cool is that? Lightning around all this spewing fire. 
That's what it looked like. And it says it was like, in the center, it was like glowing fire. Now, I've just taken a whole diversion over my preparation this week because uh, what they did in this age was they were in the Bronze Age going into the Iron Age, okay? And a smelting furnace is where your money, where your power, where your agriculture come from. If you can't smelt metal, you can't dominate the world, okay? And so at some level, a furnace is the creative heart of the whole empire. If you don't have furnaces, you can't rule. And at the center of this vision of God is burning fire. It's creative. It's powerful. Do you see that? So what do we want to know first from these first verses? Israel's God moves. Many people had gods who kind of had a little boundary fence around them. You're the God of this particular area. Israel's God is not trapped in Canaan. He is coming from the north to Babylon. Israel's God, therefore, must be the global God. He's able to move. He's the God of the whole earth. Well, there's a good start. Oh, I want to show you this guy here. This is uh, Lamassu, uh, who's uh, looking a little um, bull-like there. Uh, what the uh, Babylonians did is they put up this guy, Lamassu, um, kind of on the edge of walls like this, kind of jutting out like that. And he would hold the rest of the wall up and his awesome face, his bull-like body, his eagle's wings would be to ward off evil spirits, to keep evil spirits at bay and to hold up the wall. Now, Ezekiel is a man in his time and so his vision, have a look at this. Verses 6 to 14. We see these creatures. In appearance, their form was human but each of them had four faces and four wings. Now, it, at some level, it's the stuff of nightmares, isn't it? But, but before we say, uh, Ezekiel is just grabbing Babylonian ideas, can someone just quickly tell me, what's the body of this guy made out of? Call it out. It's a, well, it's a bull. Uh, you probably can't tell. It, it's a big, fat cow-like thing. Okay, yeah. Here, what it's saying here is, no, no, no. He didn't just pick up an idea from there and say, oh, that's our one. He's actually saying, no, no, ours are human in form, but they are awesome in a way that even transcends these guys. So have a look. They've got four faces on them and four wings. Their legs were straight and their feet like those of a calf. Similar, hey? They gleamed like burnished bronze. What's the awesome thing about burnished bronze? Apart from the fact that it has that wonderful color, it's also the outcome of a furnace. You see? Burnished bronze is the created being. It's not the creation. And so it's the created thing. It has four wings and it has four faces. If you have a look at verse 10, their faces look like this. Each of them had the face of a human being and on the right side, the face of a lion and on the left, the face of an ox and also had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces. Apparently, kings in four ways. King of humanity, human face. King of domestic animals, Bull face, king of wild animals, lion face, king of the air, eagle face. Do you see that? Incredibly powerful beings, okay? Now, more than that, uh, have a look. Uh, each one went straight ahead. Uh, apparently, they're standing in a square because their wings kind of match up. Did you see this? So all their wings are joined up. That's what they're doing. They're all, they're all standing around in this, in this square, uh, their appearance, verse 13, was, uh, was like burning coals of fire or like torches 
Fire moved back and forth among the creatures. It was bright and lightning flashed out of it. The creatures spared back and forth like flashes of lightning. Okay, Lamassu, how much moving does he do? He's a big stone doorpost if you missed that at the start. What characterizes these creatures? Flashing movement. They're dynamic, they're powerful, they are awesome. What's the point? Apart from the fact it's just an incredible vision. What's the point? God's servants are dynamic and awesome. God's servants are dynamic and awesome. Brilliant. So they're underneath. Well, if you're going to be awesome, I'll tell you what you need in an ancient world. Uh, you need your jet fighters and your main battle tanks. Okay? And here is the jet fighter and main battle tank of the ancient world. Okay? It's a chariot. And the chariot was the most devastating weapon that ancient world had at its disposal. They would mow down infantry. They were basically unstoppable for several hundreds of years. In fact, for several thousands of years, people who had chariots won battles, basically. Okay? Here's the thing. If you're awesome, you're the king, you ride on a chariot. There's a building sense that we're getting that God is ruling on top of a movable thing. Have a look with me. Uh, at verses 15 to 21. We see a description. As I looked at the living creatures, verse 15, I saw a wheel and on the ground beside each creature with its four faces. This was the appearance and structure of the wheels. They sparkled like topaz and all four looked alike. Each appeared to be made like a wheel intersecting a wheel. As they moved, they would go one of four directions as the creatures went. Their rims were high and awesome, and their four rims were full of eyes all around. Now, that last bit just freaks it out, doesn't it? Why the eyes? Do they get squashed as it rolls? Anyway, now we're starting to get past it. What's the point, okay? The point is, have a look, first of all, how high the rims of that chariot are. Probably up here somewhere. The rims of this chariot are high and awesome, Right? They are made of topaz, not, not just this wood or even metal. They're made of glowing crystal. How brilliant is that? They move freely and they move with the animals. They rise and fall. They go left and right with the creatures. Oh, incidentally, here's a cool thing as I was thinking about the four-faced creatures, right? Creature here, creature here, creature here, creature here. Whenever you look at it, guess what? You can always see their four faces, okay? So if I'm looking front on... I see the human face this side and I can see the eagle face on that side and the bull and the lion. How cool is that? So anytime you're looking at them, whichever way they move, you can always see four faces. That's just random. Uh, that's, but, it, but it's incredible. And as they move, the wheels move. What's the point of all of that? God moves effortlessly. He moves effortlessly. This chariot that he's on, it doesn't have animals pulling it. The wheels are just beside it. They are awesome. The wheels are awesome. And he just moves wherever he wants, up, down, left, right. How many chariots go up in the air, do you think? It's not back to the future, is it? That's a reference for old people. Thank you. That's good. Thank you. Um, it moves effortlessly. It's an awesome picture. Uh, yes, I've thought about the eyes. Here's what I think it's about. He sees everything. God sees everything. There's nothing that will be missed. Nothing that will be missed. 
Now, we get past the wheels and the creatures, and you think, well, we're going to just take a break now. We'll, we'll be all right. But here's the next bit. Have a look at verses 22 to 24. Spread out above the heads of the living creatures was what looked like something like a vault, sparkling like crystal and awesome. I love that it adds there, yeah? And awesome. Great. Under the wings, they were stretched out towards one another, and each had two wings covering his body. And when the creatures moved, you heard the sound. So here's the creatures, and then above the outstretched wings of the creatures is an ark, a vast dome of crystal. It's, it's almost sci-fi. and It's amazing, once you have these images in your mind, how much movies and various other bits and pieces pick up this language and use it. So if you think of Superman's uh, castle of, what is it, solitude? Uh, it's made of crystal. It's high and awesome. All this language gets picked up by other people, but here it is, a vast crystal space above the creatures. Well, what, what happens after that? Well, first of all, he's seated high. So God is seated far above the earth. He's raised high. More than that, uh, we see some incredible detail about where he is seated. Now, uh, Nebuchadnezzar II built this. This is the gates into the city of Babylon. He actually built it after uh, Ezekiel had written in about 587 or something like that. But these gates are 12 meters high. Do you notice that blue color? It's not actually paint. It's a stone called lapis lazuli. Okay? Uh, you can probably pronounce it better than I can. Uh, lapis lazuli. Uh, it's an incredible stone. And what, what he did was he wanted to make the most majestic, awesome gates that could possibly be imagined. And so here they are. Now, amazingly, bonus piece of information, um, they, the Germans found it, dug it up, took it to Berlin, and it, that is actually a, re a, re a reassembly. You guys have seen it. Wow, amazing. That's a reassembly of the actual blocks from Babylon in this museum in Berlin. Anyway, very cool. What's the point? This stone, this blue stone, was incredibly rare and valuable. And what does uh, Nebuchadnezzar do? Oh, yeah, I'm going to build my whole city gate out of it. Impressive show of, of power. Let's see how that translates here uh, to our image of the living God, uh, verses 25 to 26. And then came a voice from above the vault over their heads as they stood with lowered wings. Above the vault, over their heads, was what looked like a throne of lapis lazuli. And high above on the throne was a figure like that of a man. So above the, the expanse, which is so clear you can see through it, is this incredibly rich blue throne, which would have been unimaginably valuable. And on that throne, high above, there seemed to be a figure sitting on it. Are you getting a big picture of God so far? Here's the thing. This figure is sitting on a throne. If you were a Jew in Babylon, you would have decided God must be out on a tea break. We have lost the promised land. Foreign rulers are ruling over us. We're in exile. We haven't heard anything from God for at least five years. God is done. He can't possibly still be in charge. Maybe all these gods of the Babylonians are ruling. Really, maybe they won. What does this message send to Ezekiel? God is high. He is 
unalterably ruling over everything. And he's here. Now, guys, this morning I want to tell you there are some times when we feel that God is off duty, don't we? When he has not seen. When he does not know. When he is not answered. And God shows up in person to Ezekiel and he says, I see, I know, and I am ruling unopposed above all. What about that figure on the throne? What an incredible picture it is. Verse 27. Listen to how tentative Ezekiel's language gets here. I saw a figure, he says at the end of verse 26, like that of a man. Verse 27. I saw that from what appeared to be his waist up, he looked like glowing metal, as if full of fire, and that from there down, he looked like fire, and brilliant light surrounded him. Like the appearance of a rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the radiance around him. Notice his language here. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. And when I saw it, I fell face down and I heard the voice of one speaking. When Ezekiel encounters God, I mean, it, it's incredible. Uh, you can't make an idol of this. Do you hear how dynamic it is? Below is fire, up the top is molten metal. How do you cast that? You see this? As soon as I turn that into a statue, what happens? I've I've ruined it, haven't I? It's dynamic, it's living. Here's the other thing that, that might surprise you. Guess what? God, as he reveals himself here, is not a giraffe, he's not a hippopotamus, he's not an elephant, he is not any animal shape. Do you remember when it says in Genesis that God created human beings, what? In his likeness. And here where we see God, we should not in any way be surprised that he is in human likeness. Does this make sense? I think this is profoundly beautiful because it tells us that something about our humanity is a reflection of God as he truly is. That's beautifully affirming for the incredible value of humanity. So here's this glowing, fiery one sitting on the phone, surrounded by a rainbow. That's an awesome picture, isn't it? High and exalted. See, God is powerful in a way that nothing else can be. I mean, imagine, imagine at that point, it never happened, but imagine at that point, the king of Babylon rode out all his 50 chariots. How tall would they be at that point? Well, maybe if you've got a long spear on the top of your chariot, which is up there, maybe it's, maybe let's get radical and say it's four meters high. And his whole army is spread out there, this awesome array of power in the ancient world. Well, for starters, the rims of the wheels that are underneath the expanse, which are underneath the, do do you see how high this thing is built? Whatever it is, that whatever power on earth could be assembled is as nothing before this majestic vision, this fiery, powerful, incredible vision of the living God. Everything else is as nothing before him. He is powerful, and yet in some human form, he is personal. 
So what do we learn? What do we learn from these images? I hope your head's full of images. That's great if, if it is. What do we learn? Well, here's some things that we can learn from this. Number one, the true God is holy. And, and when we hear that, we kind of go, all oh, right, so he goes to church on Sunday occasionally and he speaks nicely to his wife. No, 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 no. Holy here is totally separate, other, lifted up, exalted, majestic, separated from us. He is in his own right, totally self-sustaining. He doesn't need us. God is wholly other to us. He's holy. The important thing about realizing that God's holy is it means that he's not chummy. Have you seen the shirt? You wouldn't have, but there's a shirt. Jesus is my homeboy. And look, this morning, I think this is where we really need to be shaken to the core, right? God is an old man with a beard sitting in a recliner somewhere that I might tap on the shoulder and wake up. Hey, God, just look, I just want to slip you my shopping list of prayer points. If, if that's, just leave you to keep sleeping. You're, you're right, as you were. Or else he's, hey, what up, God? This God... The holy, awesome, lifted up God, that that God, he's not chummy. He's terrifyingly awesome in in a real fall on the ground kind of way. Our God, the God who is in the Bible, who isn't just a rough sketch, is terrifyingly awesome. He is holy. Second, the true God is sovereign. What does that mean? Well, in essence, it means he's king. He's the king, not, in, not the king of Babylon, not the king of Israel, funnily enough, not you or I either. He's the one who comes from the north to address his people, not, not from the west. He didn't just duck over from the only place that he's king. He's king over the whole earth. And there is no power on earth, no principality, no strength, no government, no nuclear weapons that can possibly oppose the living God. He is unalterably the king of everyone and everything. And you know, every now and again, you, you, you'll see it in the, uh, the yin and yang symbol, yeah? The yin and yang, do you know, the black and the white kind of woven together? Like there's some sort of cosmic battle, uh, an arm wrestling match between God and the devil. The picture here is there is no power that can or ever will overwhelm the living God. It is not a wrestling match between two evenly matched powers. There is only God ruling sovereignly, powerfully, beautifully, wonderfully, justly over all. That's our God. And if this is who the true God is, then guess what? It's not you. For him to be king means that you cannot be king. And I think today, one of the best bits about meeting God in Ezekiel is, put yourself on that plane. Before that storm coming up over the horizon, see the fire, hear the sound of the wings, see the wheels, lift your eyes up to the expanse, see the throne, see the fiery figure on the throne, and work out whether you'd say, I don't need you, I'm running my own life my own way. How will that work out for you, do you think? It cannot stand. The sovereign God, the true God is sovereign and he is not going to share the throne with you. 
Thirdly, the true God is omnipresent. Here's your big word for the day. He's present everywhere. He's present everywhere. In Babylon, in Egypt, in Israel, with Ezekiel. He is present everywhere. And that means in every practical way, when Jesus says, I will never leave you or forsake you, he can fulfill it. For Christians, this is a wonderful truth. For those of you who are yet to meet the living God as your friend and saviour, you must know there is nothing you can do that he won't know about. He's present everywhere. He knows everything. Omnipresent. Not stuck at home somewhere. He's not stuck at home somewhere. Right here, right now, he's present. Fourthly, the true God is speaking. Did you hear that? The voice of one speaking. You see, if you're the living God and you have all the power in the universe, guess what you could just do? You could just thunder. You could growl and drop mountains. You could blow things up to intimidate people. What does he do? He speaks. Here's the really trippy bit, because all of you, as you hear God speaking, guess what language you hear him speaking in? English, yeah? Do you think he used English when he spoke to Ezekiel? Just checking. Anyone with me? No, he didn't, did he? He spoke Hebrew. See, this is important. God knows him and loves him enough not to put him through a language class. You need to learn the lesson of divinity. You know, you need to go to theological college before you can understand me. No, no, no. I'm going to speak your language. I'm going to speak your language. Do you see how beautifully loving that is? This awesome, powerful God speaks in your language. I think that's so beautiful. It's absolutely incredible that he would choose to do that. So he is not silent like the idols, yeah? Uh, Lamassu on the wall, how many words do we get out of him? Good, you with me? None. All right, number five. The true God is judge. Gee, that's unpopular, isn't it? How about we just skip this slide? Would that be good? Here's how he reveals himself. He reveals himself to us as judge. Why did he come to his people in Babylon? It wasn't just to pat them on the back. Ezekiel is about to say some of the most incredibly hard things to the people of God. He's going to say, you lost the land because you were sinful, because your idolatry is abomination before God. Because your sin is detestable before God. When he comes in fire, the idea is it's a consuming fire. The living God is judge. And what that means for us this morning is that he's not condoning all we do. His job isn't to hand out good work cards to us. His job isn't to make us simply feel better. He's come with his holy, right and just standard. And he says to us, you need to get with my program. He's coming as judge and he is not condoning all that we will do. Well, that's an awesome picture. And many of you would say, oh, yeah. God, God kind of looked a bit angry in the Old Testament. Um, we need to get to the New Testament and forget about all this terrible hard stuff that's in the Old Testament. Let's get to the New Testament. I want to take us to the New Testament, to that reading from Revelation that we heard, uh, that Winnie brought for us. I want us to get there through uh, uh, one more step. 
Uh, so Jesus is the heart, the center of God's plan in the universe, okay, Jesus. And wonderfully, he comes to earth. What form does he come to earth in? Profoundly human, doesn't he? He doesn't come as a speaking elephant. And I know this is the most obvious thing in the world to you guys, but you have to use some holy imagination. If you're the God of the universe, how could you have come? You could have come as a talking pillar of anything you want. You could have been a river that spoke. You could have done anything, but he came and lived amongst us as a human for 33 years. As he came, a man called John the Baptist saw him. Have a listen to these words up here from uh, John chapter 1, verse 29. The next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And you go, sorry, was Jesus a lamb? Good. He wasn't a lamb. What he was saying is, Jesus is, he's like the sacrificial lamb, the lamb of the Passover, the one who dies in the place of the one who deserves to die. The one whose blood is shed for the one who should pay the price for sin. And when John sees Jesus, he says, look, this man will be the sacrificial lamb for the whole of humanity. The lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Beautiful. So now we have Jesus who's a lamb and then we get to Revelation. Have a look at Revelation chapter 5 verse 6. When John, who's in prison. So John's been in prison, one of the disciples of Jesus. He's in prison. Jesus gives him a revelation, hence the name of the book, a revelation of what heaven is like. And he sees a throne room. And you'll notice in the throne room, there are creatures, there are elders, there is lightning, there is thunder, uh, there is a rainbow, uh, there are people falling down and saying all sorts of stuff. But here's the thing. In the center of the throne, at the end of the Bible, as we look at the throne, as we kind of zoom in on the throne, here's what we see. Then I saw what? A lamb. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. You can't miss this. Who's in the center of the throne? Jesus do you want to know why every other religious path will fail? You tell me whatever it is. If it doesn't exalt Jesus, it's at odds with the revelation of the living God. You don't get here some other way. It's only Jesus on the throne. There at the center of the throne is a lamb looking as if he'd been slain. It's an absolutely staggering picture. And they, they praise the lamb, don't they? They praise the lamb and they tell, they tell why the lamb is to be praised. Have a look at verse 9 in chapter 5 of Revelation. It says, And they sang a new song saying, You're worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation and you made them to be a kingdom and priest to serve our God here's the thing why does it matter that God's sovereign why does it matter that he speaks your language why does it matter that he's not just the God of Israel because the end picture is Jesus on the throne surrounded by people from every language tongue and nation yeah every tribe there will be people from Tonga and Japan and America even and New Zealand and Australia. 
and Indonesia and strange people groups that you don't know the names of in Africa. They will all be standing there because God speaks their language, because he is the king of everyone and everything, because Jesus' blood paid the price for all of them. And so the end picture is Jesus on the throne and all humanity who've bowed the knee, praising and honouring Jesus. Jesus is worshipped and honoured. That's the end point. So how did Ezekiel respond? Well, have a look at verse 28. I've got it up there on the screen there at the end of chapter 1. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. He's just saying, look, don't, don't get angry at me. It's just what I saw, okay? When I saw it, he says, I fell face down and I heard the voice of one speaking. Now, I had the kids here for assembly the other day. Uh, there are 200 kids spread out on the floor here. And I told them about this vision. And I said, when he saw God, this is what he did. And the kids were laughing and they thought that was hilarious. And we could laugh and you could think, I've never seen that happen before in a sermon. Here's the thing. Ezekiel wasn't trying to impress anyone. We don't know anyone else was there with him. What he found was an overwhelming sense of the presence of God that was so awesome, all he could do was make himself less. Did you see this? It isn't a stand up and shouting match encounter with God, is it? It's so incredibly overwhelming that he throws himself on his face. Lord, have mercy is almost implicit in what's done here. And so he throws himself on his face and God speaks to him and he tells him what he should do, which is probably even more terrifying maybe than the image of God that he saw. He says to, uh, to Ezekiel, he says, Ezekiel, you need to go and speak for me. I'm going to tell you stuff and my people, do you know what? They're really stubborn. They're horrifically stubborn. But even if they don't listen, guess what I want you to do? I want you to keep speaking. And I want you to keep speaking even as they reject me. I want you to keep speaking. I want you to not be afraid of them. Have a listen to him talking about, uh, and you, son of man, do not be afraid of them or their words. Do not be afraid, though briars and thorns are all around you, and you live among scorpions. Do not be afraid, he says, for the third time of what they say, or be terrified by them. For... Though they are rebellious people, you must speak my words to them, whether they listen or fail to listen. Brothers and sisters, our world around us right now, how well do you think it's going to receive God's word? How well is it going to receive the high, exalted God who's the judge of the universe, who won't share his throne with another? How are they going to go with that, do you think? If we announce that, how's that going to work out at your workplace tomorrow? Over the kitchen as you have a cup of coffee. While you run with your friend. How are they going to receive that word? Ezekiel is told, you must proclaim it. You must proclaim it because I'm speaking to you and I'm telling you. Because whether they like it or not, I'm the sovereign God of this universe and they need to hear What was Ezekiel's response? His first response was worship. He fell on his face. His second response was obedience. Yes, God, I'm going to go do it. Do you think he felt excited about it? God said, I'm going to make your forehead as hard as flint so that as you bash against the stone wall of this people who won't bend their knee, you will be able to persevere. Great, God, sign me up. Can't wait to get into it. Why would he do it? Because it was such a compelling vision of God, he couldn't do anything else. He was obedient. And thirdly, he proclaimed. 
He just said, I'm going to go and speak this word. And whether they receive it or don't receive it, I'm out there. I'm just going to do it. And we must do the same. Today, here's where I want to leave you. I want to ask you your vision of God right now. Do you have a vision of God that would cause you to fall face down? Or is your rough sketch of the living God so accommodating he'll never call you out on what you're doing? That you haven't heard him say no to you on anything because you're not dealing with the real God? What vision of God do you have? This morning I want to ask that the living God would show us a picture of himself, the burning, refining, creative furnace of God that we might fall face down and truly worship him as he is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, whether I've done justice to these words of yours this morning or not, I don't know. But I ask, Father, your mercy for me, for everyone here, Father, that you would help us to crumple up and throw away our poor sketches of you. God, you are living and active. Your Holy Spirit, come and convict our hearts. Show us you. Heavenly Father, point us to you in such a way that we would fall face down, that we would find in Jesus true forgiveness, that we would stand and obey and proclaim. Grab our hearts, God. Fill them. Show yourself to us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.